Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back. This is OIS Podcast number 208. I had a chance to speak with one of our OIS at SECO leaders. This is uh, an interview I did with Paul Karpecki. Paul is uh, one of the better-known optometrists, and we're very pleased to have him as a leader of OIS at SECO. In this interview, I talked to Paul about the, his path to optometry, and we also talked about his role with, uh, with startups. He's very involved in the startup community, huge supporter, of course, of technology and innovation, and uh, we discussed how these new technologies, how these tools are helping him do a better job treating his patients. So great conversation with Paul. Very thrilled to have him as a co-chair of OIS at SECO. He joins uh, James Timmons and Emmett Cunningham in that role. You should join them as well on February 21st. Go to OIS.net to register. This is our very first OIS at SECO. The agenda is up on the website. You can see we will be talking. We have many great company presentations and panel discussions as well. So go to OIS.net, check out all the details, and then, of course, register to attend. Now let's get into this conversation with Paul Karpecki. Paul Karpecki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Tom. Honored to be here. Excellent. Well, I, I want to obviously um, we have you here uh, for one reason to talk about the upcoming OIS at SECO, uh, but uh, you're a co-chair on that uh, that event, which we're very excited about. But uh, as anyone who listens to the podcast knows, I'm always uh, intrigued as to what uh, led our guests to where they are. So how did you find your way uh, into optometry? I think just a lot of luck, um, some prayer <laughs> kind of worked out to be fair. You know, I, I, it's interesting because my, my mother said that when I was a kid, like in uh, six or seven, almost all of my projects at that time were on the eyeball. So there were probably, oh, really? yeah, something there, even though I guess it was uh, not really realized until much later. And, you know, I was a myope, so I, you know, I did see an eye doctor probably first time when I was about 12 or 13. So I probably played some formation, but, but then I was more into the business side of things. I, you know, my undergrad was focused on science of business. I really thought that was the route I'd go. And ironically, I had a friend of mine who went to, I grew up in Canada and I went, he went to the U.S. to to school there, but to play hockey. And uh, growing up in Canada, I was never the biggest guy, but I was, I was pretty fast. So I could, I could hang with it and play. And then of course in Canada, I'd probably be a little above average, but in the U.S. I was pretty good, at least in Indiana. And he played there and he said, you should come down and consider doing the same thing. They've got a... Oh. Division two team now, but when I was there, it was actually about more like division three. So not high level, but it was enough to say, Hey, I've, I didn't know what to do. And really, it was really tight. I was, got accepted for a second interview at the University of Waterloo, which is where almost most Canadian, uh, you know, doctors interested, Canadian students interested in being optometrists go to. And they could also go to school in Montreal if they're fluent in, in French as well, but I wasn't. So I had got a call saying, Hey, we'd like to give you a second interview. And I thought, well, I'd love to do that. I mean, are there, you know, are you interviewing 30 or 50? Then I'm probably not going to make the long trip. But if you're interviewing five, I thought in my mind, I might do it. And they said, we're interviewing two. And I thought, wow, that's oh. really good odd. Well, they weren't good enough, uh, which in a way was a <laughs> <laughs> because I end up going. One too many, huh? <laughs> yeah, one too many. Yeah, I should have said they're interviewing one. Then I had the right odds. But 
two was one too many. And so I went to Indiana and that worked out uh, to be, turned out to be a wonderful blessing, great school. I uh, did a residency in Kentucky and then I was invited to, or and saw this opportunity of doing a fellowship under Dan Dury in Kansas City in uh, 1994-95. And of course, Dan was a raised a lot of really good ophthalmology fellows, but he was also, I was the second optometry fellow and he had a, he took one of each. And so I was lucky to be the the OD fellow they had chosen. And then from there, I just, you know, was able to learn a lot. A few of the docs knew a lot about refractive surgery at the time. So it opened up some doors and the cornea experience carried further. And and then from there, I've just been blessed. What is it uh, that you would tell someone who is considering a, a career in optometry? I'm just curious, what is it, what is it, what is it essentially in, in say maybe 15 to 20 seconds that you, that you enjoy about this profession? I enjoy the variety. I think that really is it. Your primary care providers, you're seeing the patient at first line, but it really can go almost anywhere. You could be, you know, a Focus on cornea like I do, retina. You could do primary mm-hmm. care exclusively. There's academic. There's so many avenues. So I think it really you can create your own pathway. And that's one of the nice things about optometry. And because of the demand for surgical services right now, there's a lot of medical opportunity um, that stays open. I think optometry can fill that well. And that creates a little more variety and excitement to what I was saying. Interesting. So you are early on, you were interested in, uh, in dry eye, like you became involved in, in, in into some committees in, in, uh, probably 15 years ago or so. Uh, so you've been tracking this, uh, this problem for, for a long time. What is your assessment of the development of, uh, of treatments of, of diagnosis and treatments of eye, of, of dry eye and, and, where do you see that headed? It's a great question because it's, it is fascinating how much has evolved in even the last decade. Uh, all while we're also seeing a lot more dry eye because of, you know, digital devices. In fact, I look at my phone and I, it's the iPhone X and uh, X, uh, you know, I was asked someone, what do you think X stands for? I was thinking I'd get 10 and they said expensive. Probably right, but it's, it really does stand for 10, which means 10 years ago, uh, we, we came into this, these technologies, which have probably had more of an impact on a disease than anything else. So while we're seeing this incredible increase in volume of patients because of the evaporative form of dry eye, cause you know contributed to with digital devices myeloma gland dysfunction we also are forced to have to learn a lot in the short period of time you know 15 years ago i look back at the some of the guidelines i was part of itf and and others and and of course tfos dues too uh, most recently and then you look at you know where we've evolved and it is remarkable um one in two ways one how fast we've evolved in dry eye uh, number two how little we really kind of knew uh, 20 years ago about the disease that is progressive and chronic and, and the nature of it. So it's, it hasn't quite caught up, though. I think we still have a lot of opportunity to get to the next level. I mean, I look at my own clinic, and I have a very large dry clinic. I have over 400 positive diagnosed Sjogren's syndrome patients, um, 20 to 30 graphers as host. So a very advanced clinic. It's kind of one of those clinics around the country that's a last stop for ocular surface disease, that type of cornea. And I, I look at it and I realize that, you know, 15 years ago, I probably had a 20% success rate. 20% of people were saying, you know, I'm feeling a lot better after seeing Dr. Garvey. Mm-hmm. He's made a difference. Uh, today, we actually had a survey um, independently done on our patients because someone was amazed at how many patients seemed so happy during the course of the day. And it turned out to be about 94%. So how did we get from, wow. yeah, 20 to 94? We, of course, we have a good team and we've done a lot, but it's, it's telling us that there's something we finally are figuring out. And we're we're advancing, and I've loved to I've loved and enjoyed the whole ride and the progression. I don't think we've solved it. I think there's a lot more we still have to kind of 
on earth and discover and manage, but we are really getting close and having a great impact on patients. That's terrific. And, that, and that's transformational for your, for your practice. And it, it seems as there's a lot of opportunity for optometry practices to, to bring in new tech and to, to treat even more diseases. I know you're involved heavily in the startup community, working with a lot of startups. Most recently, I think I saw a, a release where you're working with Ocumetic, which is making a drug eluding uh, contact lens. How is this uh, startup technology, innovative technology, how is that going to change optometry offices going going forward? Yeah, Tom, that's become a passion. I love the startup level. It's just dynamic. It's exciting. It's making a difference. And, you know, I, the question is, how does it and how will it make a difference? It's it, Well, I'll give you one example, Tier Lab. I mean, I, I look back and before having mm-hmm. molarity testing, uh, how we even managed to run a dry clinic it just baffles me. I mean, without that test, and you can't just rely on one test. You really have to also do the other steps, looking at expressing the glands, mypography, so helpful, um, you know, inflammatory markers. And all these are typically small companies to begin with. And we look at, you know, what that has delivered for us today and, and how we're able to differentiate who has dry eye versus other diseases versus NK, all these other things that come in. Wouldn't be able to do that. And I, and I realized it real uh, suddenly about a year ago. Um, actually maybe two years now, as time flies, where there was a day where the staff or someone had, uh, as my previous clinic, forgotten to order any cartridges. And so we were without our diagnostic tools. And I've also had the same thing happen where other things have just gone down for a day. And we were literally an hour and a half behind. Uh, I wasn't sure of my diagnosis. I realizing I'm not sure if this is the right initial treatment, but let's start this. Almost like had to repeat the exams when they came back the next time. So I very quickly mm-hmm. realized wow, what a difference these technologies make and how we're doing it. Could you do it without them and the old school type approaches? Yeah, you're still going to do okay. You're still going to get there. But if you really want to get to a high level, we see 40 to 50 patients. Sometimes we've seen as much as 60 in a day of advanced patients. There's no possibility without relying on technology, most of which comes from startup companies. And it's discovering, you know, what they are, how they work, why they're so valuable, where they fit in. Once you put all these pieces in place, it's a lot of fun. It's so enjoyable to practice at that level. Um, it's invigorating. So what changes do you see coming? We're going to talk about the uh, OIS at SECO meeting on February 20th, which is happening on February 21st in New Orleans. Uh, what areas, how, how will optometry practice change? What, what, what uh, divi- d- diseases, conditions will you be able to treat or diagnose uh, in the future that you're not currently able to, to do? Or what, what maybe procedures are your, it, will you be able to perform that you're not currently doing because of some of the innovation you're seeing from the startups you're working with? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's really an important question and because it's it's probably not so much uh, new ones. Because, well, you never know. I mean, stuff comes around the horizon that you, you just are shocked by, wow, what an amazing innovation. How did someone come up with this? It's quite incredible. But I really see for a while the the need for just advancing in the medical eye care for the profession and, and in a way of probably a minimum of four conditions Actually, I'd say five. And all of these are growing at such a rapid pace. I mean, you look at dry eye with 30 to 50 million people, macular degeneration, 10, perhaps 15 million over the next 20 years, diabetic macular uh, retinopathy uh, in patients with diabetes are 30 to 35 million. I mean, these are huge numbers, glaucoma, and of course, cataract population with the baby boomers. So I think those are five big areas that the profession uh, should continue to advance in or even in some cases needs to advance in further. So, again, dry eye, macular degeneration, re- uh, degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, cataracts and glaucoma. And if, if we do uh, advance in terms of our diagnostics, our skills, our di- treatment, 
and we are all going to do better. Uh, I, you know, I did a preceptorship in Retina, at Retina Associates of Kentucky, a wonderful experience, one of the top 20 retina centers in the country. And it was a tough to fit that in in the course of a year, but it was well worth it. And, you know, as I worked with them, I realized very quickly that they want the same thing. They're saying, you know, I really don't want the patient too early because I can't do much and it doesn't work with the type of overhead in the clinic that we have. But I also don't want the patient too late where I can't make a difference and recover their vision. And I think that, you know, that's optometry's world is the ability to primary care manage these patients. I mean, optometry is 88% of all comprehensive eye exams. It's in this incredible number. That is really the starting point. That's where you triage and you manage and you decide who goes where and what needs to be done and how far can I follow and can I follow long enough that it helps the whole system but not too long that I miss something and when do I need to refer and what diagnostic and every one of those diseases we just talked about has some level of that ability. And then I think as things evolve, certainly if we get to where it's so busy for surgeons and we continue to see, you know, a bit of a shortage where I would tell you in, in Lexington, Kentucky, our top surgeons are are swamped. They're they're backed three, four days, three, four months, I mean, not not exaggerating. And so now next tier of surgeons is having to pick up the difference. And uh, and that not necessarily good. Some are, some are really good, but those top tier ones are so inundated that, you know, the more optometry can do and the more surgery can do as uh, surgeons, the better the system is going to work. And so there are levels in between there. And as new technologies evolve, we're going to, you know, discover what works best for the doctors, for the system, but most importantly for the patients. Well, you're one of the founding co-chairs of uh, OIS at SECO. How did you first come to be involved with, with OIS? Did you attend one of our other events? And uh, what what sort of takeaways did you walk away from when you did, or if you did? Absolutely. I, I've, been, I've been blessed because, um, I, you know, I'm an optometrist, and that's my profession. And I'm very proud of our profession. We have, you know, docs who really care about patients, great advocacy, good individuals, great values. And, but I've also, you know, started in ophthalmology. I wouldn't be where I was, am today. Fortunately, if it wasn't for ophthalmology and having done a fellowship in Kansas City. And then uh, for the first three or four years of my career, I um, was one of the first people to get to know the orb scan to learn about it in the early 1990s. Uh, because we, the clinic was busy and they needed someone to kind of figure this machine out back then. And so I was fortunate to be invited to speak um, during uh, the summit laser and VizX laser certification. So every, pretty much every surgeon um, who was going through the certification had to listen to how to interpret potential keratoconus and how do you use these technologies at the time for diagnostic purposes for me. So I got to meet a lot of top quality uh, surgeons, uh, very fortunately. And so it, it allowed me to play a role in, in both professions and also to educate in mine. Um, with that, though, I was able to attend those meetings and and so OIS was one that fascinated me. I, I love the concept of, of learning about the innovative early technologies, what's coming out, where the future is. Uh, you know, Emmett and the team have just done an incredible job with that program. Uh, and it, it's exciting. It's a full day. And I remember my first OIS was probably yeah, close to a decade ago. So it was quite a early on in it and uh, maybe even longer than that. And I remember thinking, wow, this would be something we need in optometry too. And, and things evolve and technologies do and advances and optometry's role. And I think the timing's perfect. I think now we're at a stage where, you know, optometry is a primary care profession, seeing primary eye care profession, seeing 88% of all comprehensive eye exams probably uh, needs this as much or more of understanding, you know, how to position their practice, what these technologies are, how they impact what they're doing, and most importantly, how they help their patients. So, I've uh, been involved, attended probably 
10 or 12 over the years, OIS and the ophthalmology programs, typically before ASCARS, sometimes before AO, and then uh, now having it at SECO, I think, is a terrific uh, opportunity for the profession. I think it's going to be as valuable, insightful, exciting, and I'm honored to get to participate. What uh, what areas are you trying to, would you like to see the, the program cover? What, what uh, areas will other optometrists find uh, compelling reasons to attend? Yeah, that's such a good question because we have such a, a vast, you know, variety of things that optometry does uh, from low vision services and, uh, you know, visual therapy to medical eye care to advanced, you know, d- treatments um, across the board. But I would say that I think the biggest opportunity is the, is the medical eye care. I think that's where the shortage is. You know, there's not enough top tier surgeons to do the number of surgeries we're expecting to see over the next decade. Uh, there's not really a lot of new residents coming out in ophthalmology, but there are more optometrists. And so if you, I know if I were to interview any of the surgeons I'm lucky to work with and say, you know, would you rather do medical eye care or surgery? They they kind of look at me odd and say, think, why would you ask that? Of course, I'm, surgery is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I really thought, well, what, what's going to happen to all the medical? And I, and I think that's where optometry really has to continue to advance. And they are, no question, they're filling in that gap. Um, but in, in a way that really will serve patients dramatically, which is, I think, and again, I really believe that's optometry. I don't think you could try other PAs or things like that and have any sort of success, which I've seen tried and, and it did not work. So if optometry has a program like OIS where they can look at the current and near future advancements in medical eye care from dry eye to glaucoma, um, you know, retinal disease, and even cataract surgery, uh, because they are making a lot of the, you know, the early decisions in terms of those patients and what direction they may go. You know, frankly, I work in a surgical center. I might get 10 or 15 minutes with a patient looking to have cataract surgery. They're going to trust their optometrist they've seen for 20 years, way more than 10 minutes with me. So optometry has to be able to educate and, and provide those insights and help them steer them to what's going to be best for them. And be educated to know what's best for them. And I think OS can deliver that in these medical areas. And I think that's what makes it exciting and helps us position our practices, helps us understand where things are going, and then most importantly, helps us better serve our patients. So final question, what are you uh, telling your, your colleagues about OAS, those who haven't attended an OAS before? Uh, why should they attend this one? That's really the most important question because it's so new. <laughs> I mean, they've not heard of OIS. I get a lot of emails, calls saying, what is this you're doing? And so it is, I, w- I would say, um, it's very hard to say, hey, this is what it's involved. I just often say, you, you just got to attend one and you're going to catch the fever. You're going to understand what's involved and how exciting this is. Uh, if you've been lucky to attend one prior to Askers, for example, you you know, have a really good idea. And there's a lot of optometrists who work in industry who've been to many of these and, and others that practice in, in surgical settings that have been to many. But for the majority of our profession in private practice, um, they're not going to be attending those meetings. And so this is their first opportunity. And and I tell them that if you want to attend, you know, a full, comprehensive, focused session that will best guide you to where the future is and really almost an investment of you for your your future and your practice and how you care for patients. I don't think anything could deliver it to this level. And for that reason, it's really worth catching one of these OIS. And we have a wonderful opportunity now that we have OAS SECO right in one of our top optometric conferences. Terrific. Well, thanks for the, the time today. And thanks for all your work that you're doing on uh, OAS at SECO. I know it's going to be a terrific event. Thanks, Tom. So I'm um, honored to get to do that. Thank you for, for inviting me to this podcast and uh, thrilled to be participating in OAS SECO. 
All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the OIS podcast. It's great to have you here. Please excuse uh, my voice. I've got a little bit of a cold, but it's moving on through. I hope you do join us at OIS at Seco. Again, go to OIS.net to register. And uh, if you wouldn't mind doing a few things for the podcast, please tell your friends. You can subscribe to the podcast. Do that on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Give a ranking if you have some thoughts about the podcast. And of course, reach out to me. I am on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom on Twitter. Or you can email me, Tom at Healthogy.com. Healthogy is spelled with the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y. Healthogy is the producer of this podcast and the OIS events, including the upcoming OIS at Seco. So again, go to OIS.net. We've got the agenda up there. You can sign up and be there on February 21st in New Orleans.